0: Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from Kingston University in London. Before I introduce this episode's guest, um, a couple of dates to remind you of. The first is that our exhibition of the work of all the students in our school opens on the 3rd of June, and you're all welcome to come to that. It's been a privilege over the last few weeks seeing it all come together, and I know it will make a very enjoyable show. And the second is the symposium, um, which we're organising on the 14th of June, Um, entitled Dwelling in the Periphery. For the next few years, we're setting the theme for the school generally of dwelling in the periphery in its broadest sense. We're seeking to explore peripheral conditions and to develop meaningful architectural responses to this. And the symposium on the 14th will assemble artists, authors, architects, um, economists, planners, to kind of start a conversation in the school about the breadth of the topic. It starts at 2pm, runs till 6, and again, everybody's welcome. Um, This episode's guest is the sculptor Maud Cotter. We invited Maud to the school as a critic and then in response to student requests uh, to give a lecture. um, Maud's insight into process and the agency of material in work process and also the spatiality of architecture and of art uh, allows her to make an incredible contribution to an architectural conversation around some of these matters which are occasionally quite hard to verbalise. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. So, thanks very much for coming to Kingston and giving the lecture. Okay. Um, I suppose it's kind of interesting because we've known each other for a while, Mm -hmm. but then you rarely get to ask elemental questions in a kind of, you know. I suppose the the, the kind of banal place to start might be, you know, the journey to becoming an artist. I mean, how did you make that decision? Where did you study?
1: Um... I think I was always an artist, actually, since I was a child. Um, so much, my first kind of uh, exterior recognition of my condition was a neighbour. I didn't live, I grew up in a very affluent neighbourhood, right? But a neighbour knocked on the door one day and he'd been out at the city dump and he found this kind of man, mannequin which he was kind of cut off from the, from the waist and it was just the head and the shoulders, and he said, "I thought Maud would like this." <laughs> and so, like, I always thought back. God, he was wonderful, and I had—I made a big installation in the bedroom with it. Like I was about nine or something, and I got an old suit and I stuffed it, and I had got this kind of blonde wig for Christmas. That was my Christmas present. So <laughs> I put the blonde wig on, and I, I stuffed every single socks and gloves and the whole thing. I made this complete figure.
0: This kind of bridge installation. That, yeah.
1: Sitting in the bedroom, and my sister went up, and she got completely cross-eyed with terror. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I was always doing odd things. Yeah. Do you know?
0: And that's like your 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 parents and your family. Was it a kind of creative upbringing, or?
1: Um. My mother made all our clothes, so I had all handmade clothes. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Right up to... Mm, since... Until uh, I was 20.
0: Yeah. And, and you'd input into those.
1: <clears throat> well, actually, the interesting thing is when my mother used to uh, follow fashion. Yeah. And then she would make me these very strange kind of garments. Do you know? So... By strange... as, a teena- as a teenager, I had... You know, quite stylish, <laughs> kind of eccentric clothes, which my mother made. Uh, to the point at which, even when I was very small, uh, but when I was like I don't know about ten, I ended up getting a, ha- a, a shop-made dress or something, and like I was terrified of it. I just kept my hands out from touching it. And really, I, when I was in mass, like I was dry vomiting because I couldn't bear the fact that it had. It was so untamed. Yeah it hadn't been handled, you know? And my grandfather was a tailor, so I used to spend hours, you know, when I was very young, with a big box of buttons in his workshop. And he had, obviously I was sufficiently entertained with all the different buttons, but he had, um, he drafted all his own patterns so there were these beautiful drawings and, and sections of suits and dresses and things chalked and measured on nails around the room. That mm. was what the room was like. And then down the centre he had benches where he steamed and then he had the machine and he sewed and like I would be there for hours with him. And I, I kinda did that regularly.
0: Yeah, so this is drawing, this is yeah. making Absolutely, yeah, yeah all of these things between your mother and your grandfather. Yeah, yeah. And then what seems like, I mean, from an external perspective and somebody, you know, relatively ignorant of the art world, mm. is from the time of your education, there seems to be a remarkable number of quite interesting female sculptors, artists, yeah. I don't know which term they prefer to use, um, mm. as a kind of school of thinking, or a kind of, there's certainly a formidable presence in the Irish cultural landscape. Yeah. Were you colleagues with them in your education, or were they people you met up with afterwards, or how did that um, work?
1: Well, the two people I would have been associated with, I suppose, in college would have been Alicia Connell and Vivian Roach. Yeah. Um, They preceded me in college and I came in. I had to sort of fight my way into the sculpture area with determination to be allowed in there, you know. And
0: why was that? Why would you be prohibited from that?
1: Well, the thing was, John Burke, the sculptor, was the guy who ran the sculpture area and he was a a part-timer. And, you know, he, he didn't want people annoying him, so... Students, you mean. Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, like, he wouldn't let me join because, like, I would have been an irritation, you know, to have to teach me or, you know, just have another one around the metal area because we had no technicians. And, you know, to have some other young thing, like, fecking farting around in there would have been a real irritation. So I, I, I noticed he used to wear this clean shirt on Wednesdays at the night classes. You know and I reckon he he was kind of interested in a member of the of the class, and but he'd lock his class, you see huh. he'd lock his class, so nobody would come in so i I started kicking the door, and he'd come out, and he'd tell me to piss off home and do my knitting and the, oh so then like would kick some more and he'd come out, and he he'd get very annoyed and then I went back again, and kicked some more, and then he'd tell me to that I was only a you who had a cabbage into you off and stuff. So I kicked some more and eventually he gave in. He let me into the class. And then I asked him that I was really wanting to go for him because it was modeling from life. That actually I really wanted to go into the medical class. And he said, Absolutely, no way, you're not going near that. So um, he said, What I want you to do is take that big, there was this big, big pit of sort of clay full of these weird worms in that and like it was enormous and I had to take all the clay and prepare it for the class you know so take out the worms and then eventually he he allowed me to do something with plaster and he said I just want you to cast something I don't care what it is and maybe make a, an element of it in the sense you know and see how it might go together so what happened was I decided to do the lid of a bin, and so I cast about 20 of them. I was kind of hacking, cutting them with a little bit of an old hacksaw. You know, because we didn't have equipment. First of all, I used all the plaster up, and I was creating, I was gobbling up space, and I was becoming, yet again, a total irritation. And, like, not only that, but I cut my hand sewing, and didn't seem to have stopped me and stuff like that. So he was really pissed off with me, so he he just to get rid of me from the room. He put me into the metalwork area, which is where I wanted to go anyway.
0: But this reticence, is this because you were a woman, or was this just because? No, it was no, that's just the way it was.
1: It was like to everybody. It was kind everybody, of everybody. I mean, the thing is, you earned your place. It was, you know, it was like I was, I, I was also lucky because we went out. We were allowed. It, it's rather difficult to understand now the fact that the school school wasn't really structured. Like, for example. I decided I was going to go to art college and I hadn't made any application, I knew nothing about it, Uh, but I rolled up three drawings in my hand and I walked into town and I walked into the college and I asked for an interview. And I just bumped into, I was very lucky, I just bumped into somebody in the corridor and they said they weren't sure if they they could get it together but to hang on a minute. And it it was John O'Leary who was the most amazing teacher. Mm. But he got Con Lynch and, and, and John Burke into the lecture theatre. John Burke stood, stood behind or sat behind me, kind of hacking me, and then the other two sat above and gave me an interview and I persuaded them, really persuaded them, to let me in and they said, Okay, so start on Monday. And this was Friday.
0: And what was your expectation? So what when you chose an art school, mm. what was your expectation?
1: I wanted to become a social worker and I couldn't go to college. I didn't have the money to go to college, but I'd always been doing art. You know, I just had everything. I mean, I I just did it all the time naturally. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll go to the art college, and I thought, well, you know, I, I'll be able to become a designer, and I can make money. Yeah. And of course, after about exactly two weeks, I realized I was exactly where I should be, mm-hmm. and. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a sculptor. I mean, I, that was it. I was always making things was my thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And you still self-describe as a sculptor. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I, I mean, sculptor in a very broad sense is I mean, dealing with space and matter. Mm-hmm. You know, spatiality to me is one of the most exciting things and perhaps one of the most abstract. You know, that sort of, even within even within drawing, that kind of volatilized edge of the line, it's always opening new, new conceptual space it is in itself a sort of almost the edge of thinking so that that's sculpture to me that kind of projection through space in drawing and drawing in space with line, you know mm. they're very closely linked so space the nature of space was critical and that's
0: me. yeah and it's interesting because that's how you knew you first through your work obviously yeah. which. <clears throat> I think a lot of architects respond to, you know, for the very reasons you've just described. You know, it's this kind of... It is a a dialogue about space and form and presence and these complicated things, which are actually difficult in a way to verbalise, although you're very sophisticated at finding ways to say these things. But it's interesting then because it was when I've seen you crit students' work and speak to architects about, well, process actually and how to... Uh, establish a kind of sustainable creative process which is a site of inquiry but is productive at the same time critical and also uh, moving forward not not getting mired in its own criticality Mm -hmm. it's which is uh, is something which is just extraordinarily well established in your work I find it really uh, wonderful to be around and it's kind of an interesting thing because I'm just intrigued because that ability to verbalize or to I suppose to put names on things. It's actually in your work practice as well, mm. but also in this kind of ability to enunciate what it is that we do in the work that we're making as we're making it. Mm. Am I overstating yeah. that, or
1: no? Well, actually, I don't know if it's thing, I don't know if it's something that's advantageous to me. A lot of people feel that it undermines the mystique of work to speak about it. But I think I've been thinking about that recently and remembering that I started as a poet. You know, I, I started writing before I started in the art college. I was a teenage poet. Really? <laughs> I was, yeah, I was ridiculous. But I got a poem read out on the radio and everything when I was in school. You know.
0: School. What age were you? God,
1: I was just in, I was like 13 or 12 or something
0: yeah it's funny if there was a it's recipe. like
1: you know but it nevertheless i was i was one I was forging words you know the spatiality and and the kind of the kind of aura and all that aspects of words, the resonance and the kind of way they push and pull and how relative they are I was really interested in that when i was when I was quite young and um the thing was then that um there's some sort of way my mind works that sometimes there's a it kind of I I get the colour and I get sensation and the word in a sort of integrated Mm. fashion so it's very amalgamated in my mind you know so
0: but the interesting thing about the words that you're describing they're also part of an opening up process do you know what I mean?
1: well the funny thing is then yes they are but, you know, it, 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 it's um, the, the, the fluency in language and description around the work comes much later.
0: Yeah, but the actual work.
1: All of it is, is pre-linguistic. I mean, all of my work is pre-linguistic in terms of it's being formed. You know, it's, it, and it, it becomes, I love the territory then where it be, kind of prompts language to, it prompts an engagement with language.
0: It asks a naming or a kind it, of a it becomes
1: more conscious and as it as it filters up, it kind of begins to engage. Yeah. And like I was interested in um, in those territories. Oh God, I'm really bad name. Anyway, that whole that whole sort of idea that only certain things can become manifest through the visual mm. visualization is the business of the visual. I was reading that today, in... Uh, Rosalind Krauss But like to to some extent there's um I think the relationship between that sort of pre pre linguistic and the whole question of, of of what constitutes matter and how we conceive of and manage the material of the world. That's 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 so underdeveloped and under respected.
0: Yeah, it's you
1: know yeah. that I that I'm interested in that I'm interested. So it's it's like oh, I'm interested in the spatiality, but I'm also interested in in the mercurial properties of the object and matter. Yeah, you know. So it's how those interact really are my fields of interest. Yeah, no, language is part of that. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this is it's interesting because we've kind of talked before about how the rational construct is a kind of, is a fragmentary one. Yeah. So there is no overarching rational landscape that we inhabit. There are the fragments that we choose to yeah. establish, remove, re-establish. Yeah. And it seems to be that that turning on and off of rational realities in the making of work is also a really valuable thing, which is yeah. that, okay, there's something, you use the word pre-language or that's kind of unverbalizable. It's a similar thing in architecture, I suppose, where one has an agenda you know there's a brief and there's a site and there's all those sorts of Mm -hmm. things and there are marks which are ostensibly about finding solutions to those but they're never the marks that have any real Mm -hmm. value in finding the kind of feeling of the thing yeah and they're kind of difficult things to do i mean we we find sometimes because we're a partnership that conversation is very useful in terms of you're drawn to the qualities of a drawing or a model or something or something that is maybe abstract or an abstract capturing of something Quite tangible and it's in the describing of what one sees there to one another that actually you find the essence of something that you might want to pursue I mean regardless right. of plan, resolving yeah. all that kind of stuff but the but that seems to be a kind of common ground where architects can feed off practitioners like you and I hope that works Absolutely. vice versa yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, I've really enjoyed my engagement and, and the conversations I find them very stimulating I also like the kind of gymnastic aspect of it of being of say when I kind of in, when I'm involved with um, with all these projects, I haven't seen until that day that my mind has to kind of absorb it and solve it really quickly, and I like that. It's like a, a workout for me. I really enjoy that. This is when you're critting. Yeah, when I'm critting. twenty architecture
0: students yeah, in a day I or love something. That. Fact, I absolutely
1: yeah. adore it. The, and the other thing is, you see, I think that there the, there is there is a kind of particular territory. Um, it can be very amorphous, and it can be something that's induced and found, and that, and that is the relational kind of aspect of both matter and space. Yeah. And uh, this is really, this is really, I think the um, the things that have to be judged because it's emergent through material. Yeah. It's not something that you can absolutely rigorously project. Yeah. You can do it, but it doesn't make for a live and um, receptive environment for people. Yeah. I think there is. A, it, 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 it comes down to the territory of, for example, say, for example, as an architecture drawing and how that drawing gets translated onto the site and how the physicality and the spatial and relational aspects and context of the site actually feed back into the drawing and back and forth. Whereas for me, what I do is I don't tend to do drawing. What I do is I wait until I've all that spatiality in my head builds up, and it kind of becomes filmic in my head. Mm. So i that's the sort of, um, so in a way, it's, it's necessary for me to hold that and not speak too much about it, and then Then I have the kind of, if you like, the energy and the intellectual spatial capacity which is built up in my head to make the piece. So that fuels the making of the piece. And I draw in the context of that. Mm. And that's pretty much the way I work. Um, And at the same time, uh, even though we've had this nice conversation earlier today about a piece I'm making, which I really enjoyed, but I chose the moment for that. Yeah. Where my mind has kind of just stepped back, you know, and it, I have to be careful because because of the building up the intensity, it's like energy, you just build up this intensity oh, yeah. of energy.
0: I know, I agree. I mean, even here, like we would talk about work yeah. a lot, like all our jobs yeah. are done jointly, but each of us has to have built up a kind of a reservoir of various things for the conversation to be in any way useful. Mm-hmm. I mean, conversation on its own, just you just sit there going nowhere. Yeah. I mean, you have to be producing speculative mm-hmm. pieces which you have a charge, which you yeah. bring to that conversation. It's, it's about the capturing of the unknowable parts of those things I find the conversation useful. Um, yeah. I think I'm terribly comfortable with the pre-established thought that I had when I made the thing, the drawing or the model or something that I was mapping forward and knowing mm-hmm. that there's something else in the work and then it's in that conversation that you see that quality being recognized yeah. somewhere else, and that allows you to capture it yourself. And then you're on the next step on the staircase, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Which happens when teaching students as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Commonly, one would be having a conversation with a student, and actually, of course, your own work is in your head at the same time as you're looking at their work. And sometimes you're seeing things in their work that's allowing you to release things in your own. It's almost like mm-hmm. this kind of relational thing, again, that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Which I think is just this this idea about the social aspect of these things, be it space Mm -hmm. itself or be it the actual Mm -hmm. production of meaningful space. is just very interesting to me. I mean, it's problematic in architecture because we're remarkably poor at describing spaces. You know, so, Mm -hmm. um, of course, there's lots of techniques like photography and, you know, computer modelling and physical modelling and all of those things. But there actually is nothing that you can really
1: no, you say about you the immersive. Anticipate that rogue element in space. And
0: yeah, that. and when your peripheral mm-hmm. sense of touch is engaged, and your peripheral vision, and you know, the aural kind of framework of the space you're in, mm-hmm. and this kind of feeling of where you're going and where you're leaving, and of course the motivations that has you in the space in the very first place, yeah. which could be banal or significant. Yeah. And there's simply very little one can say about that other than making those spaces, critically trying to understand them and then... I
1: think I've been very much... I've been trying and I've been working with that um, over the last few years. I named one piece recently, um, which is a quotation from an American poet called Susan Howe, and it is... the title is The relational space is the thing that's alive with something from somewhere else. And the interesting aspect of that is that somehow by creating relational context that you induce a third other element to become apparent yeah and this can either be say for example if you put the piece of work in the context of an, an interior that it has to induce another sensation it shifts the material reality or perceptual reality of the space and it also changes the piece so that it induces a third or other element. That's what and I'm interested in.
0: And in that context then, do you, I suppose, have an issue with the white box then? Because if you're looking for some um, quality to play off.
1: No, I mean, the thing is, um, I, I'm i an artist of the interior, really, because it's in the interior, you know, if you, if <laughs> when I didn't have a studio once, I mean, all I was doing was just fantasizing this idea of an interior with a line of thread hanging from the ceiling, this kind of criticality. You know, I just longed my absolute desire for space that had compression to it so that, you know, this this kind of autonomous space in the studio where you can examine those kind of ideas. I'm I'm less attracted to public art, even though I have been involved in it. It's become somewhat burdened by a lot of other criteria that I would not have on my... It, they wouldn't be drivers in terms of my, um, the way I, I solve things spatially and what I'm looking for. I tried to, if I were doing something, then I would have to have that kind of very tentative and um, quite slightly displaced and contrary element to the piece. Like, in other words, the piece is almost still a mystery to itself and it's kind of not 100% absolutely resolved.
0: Until to, you're making it in situ. you... No,
1: but I don't even like it to be absolutely resolved. I can bring it beyond resolution, which is destruction, to the point of resolution, which is too comfortable, or just keep it hungry under, under the edge of resolution. That's where I like to be. Mm. So I like the slightly ragginess of and desire of that, you know, the fact that the piece... A lot because it would bring you because it brings your mind in and you and the and the viewer begins to complete it. and then there's an interaction that's what I like I don't like things to be closed yeah so there's that whole thing say for example, which I think is consistent through the, my work which is this idea of porosity mm. because I suppose I understand objects as having some sort of a process of dispersing themselves and contracting again you know that they disperse their aspects materially intellectually socially contextually they're constantly dispersing points of decision as well and all sorts of things into space and at the same time, they gather back into their objectness it's like a, dyno, a dynamo thing mm. so and I, sometimes you kind of describe it as an exhalation inhalation mm. so there's a pulsation and there is a there is all those live aspects to it and I like to play with that, sometimes drain it more of energy or less of energy, so that it becomes very partial or more intensely itself. The kind of things that really interest me are things of the interior where I can do that. It's kind of like a lab.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so you, you <clears throat> that's very interesting though, because you're looking for an element of control in the interior, which allows you to make work which isn't fully controlled or controllable. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of an intriguing kind of paradox there in a way. Yeah. Um, And I think that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Although the first time I saw your work wasn't in any such setting. It was a fragment maybe picked up off the floor of the sculpture factory. I don't know. I was working for Tom DuPierre as a summer student in fourth year. And in he had this kind of single glazed window, you know, where there was two layers of single glazing and about a foot in between. And in it he had various beautiful (laughs) things. And one of them was an A4 size piece of the kind of, those wonderful corrugated card screens you made with the side laminate exposed and stacked as a kind of an amazing porous stratum. Mm. And it was sitting in the window of my desk and, you know, just spent time, idle time looking through it and at it and on its surface and all of those Mm. sorts of things. And it was only at the end of the summer when I was leaving the office that I asked Tom what it was and he said, he said your name so mm. that's obviously something by Maud and of course I didn't know you but it was interesting it held it held space in a different way yeah. and that must have been a fragment of that screen you did in the gallery in London or something um, or?
1: I did the the in absence which was this kind of you know this kind of sense that you're in total connection with everything you're molecularly dispersed in the city you're somehow somehow drained by the city and your body becomes implicated in everything worn and and also echoed and I began to kind of get that sense in London when I was living there of this kind of tissue which was an amalgam of both the body and the structure. Mm -hmm. And so I I found this piece of cardboard on my studio floor, which I tried to throw out about four or five times, but I kept kind of keeping it. And um, then I realised that actually I liked the cellular nature and the little pockets of air in the flutes. Mm-hmm. And I also loved the three-tier, and I began to realize these are, the, these are basic building structures. And it had an amalgam of body and structure that I quite liked. And when I began to work with it, then it um, had this moray. And I pretty much, when I picked up that little bit of card off my studio floor, I said to myself, I should be able to say something about what it is like to be alive. In the twenty-first century, or the twentieth century as it was then, yeah. it was the twentieth century then <laughs> that I should be able to say something about it with this piece of cardboard.
0: But it's interesting because yeah. you know earlier you were talking about how you, you, you wish for the work to have open questions left in it for others to pick up from, which is yeah. I, I completely empathise with about architecture too. Yeah. Which is certainty is is definitely its enemy. You know this yeah. kind of where things close down to themselves, yeah. complete. There's nothing left. Yeah. um and but then it's interesting that you're looking for open questions in the kind of everyday matter of the detritus that surrounds us, and part of that seems to be about removing its name from it. I mean you know that wasn't a piece of cardboard when you were looking at it in those terms, or at least in the sense yeah. that I would describe it, you know yeah. because a piece of card comes, that word comes with the self described limit yeah. on, on yeah. the actions available to that piece of matter,
1: yeah. and of
0: course, when you remove it and you describe it as a tripartite layering of fluted space, which is somehow a clumsy way of saying what you said, it becomes something else.
1: Yeah, I mean, conceptually you can... It's rather like um, the abstraction you can reach with a word. You can reach the same sort of... You can tilt material into a completely contrary condition other than itself. And I quite like doing that. Mm. I like... I mean, I I, I like these kind of hybrid conditions because they, they... they lift away from they lift materiality into another into another potential, and it actually begins to bend um, reality in the sense that you can begin to remake things with a different conceptual um, set of values or whatever you want to call it, and that's very transformative of material. And I feel I sort of felt that. In a way, we need to value things that are discarded and somehow find a conceptual language of transformation and that we can remake the world in that way by using less materials, by being able to shift their meaning and shift their behaviours and shift their possibilities.
0: But I think that's also true of the <coughs> detritus of work process. Yeah, You know, that there's something about... Um, being able to see the work as it's forming with some kind of innocence or some kind of new sight to see it for what it is, you know, so that you know the questions that it's asking of you in terms of how you move it forward to, it's, completion is the wrong word, but you know, the, the point where it has to be delivered, you know.
1: Yeah. Like there are those mercurial moments with material where it just kind of seems to dissolve, you know, and... Actually, Kirk, Kirkby, Kirby, the um, Northern European painter, talked about these as kind of holes in the material. You know that there are p- points at which things just slip open. You know, it's 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 a very strange thing. I mean, you probably feel it when you're working with something, and suddenly something um, shifts. You know, you can feel something slide. But sometimes it can be more evident. Yeah. Like it can feel like. Uh, I did this um, installation in in America last year, and the piece is called The Relational, A Network of Relations in the Field of the Sun. And it's about just a set of relations.
0: Yeah.
1: And that set of relations shifts into a new formation in a different site, you know? Right. And and when I did it, it just felt like strange. It felt like it, it opened a scene and it it sat into a different spatiality and it changed the piece completely. It was a very strange feeling.
0: So this was at the point of it actually, of you putting Installing it there. Yeah it, yeah. it completely changed as you did that.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I had this strange feeling. And Good. It very. made me think very strange thoughts. <laughs> like, you know, I kept thinking a black hole is, is an implosion of matter, you know, and perhaps there is another... Way of, of expressing matter forward, it, you know, that opens up new potential spatialities and perceptions, that yeah. that is the way forward and the black hole is the way back. I mean, if you think of Iceland as an, ice, as an island, yeah. the thing is settler, which is the, where, where the plates of the interior of the island shift, and actually the island is opening at its centre, you know, as, as, it, as it kind of um, shifts.
0: It's like unrolling a sock or something. It's, it does, yeah. but
1: it's getting corroded near the edge.
0: Yeah, so it's constantly welling up from the middle, falling out to its edge. And, and being
1: corroded. So it's turning inside out, yeah. if you like, you know, if you're to think of it like that. So if you think of that shape in terms of um, there is an opening as well as a destruction.
0: Yes, and both are necessary. And
1: both are a part of the same process.
0: Yeah, and so there is ground, but the ground is incredibly uncertain. But it exists for long enough for you to stand on, right? And yeah, to kind of think. and
1: it's like that edge as, as, as um, Ed Cosma used a word to a volatilized edge. You know, it's at that edge between dematerialization and being and being still in the matter. that's yeah. the kind of line of inquiry.
0: It's interesting. It's just a, it's quite a difficult thing to to teach because actually a lot of it's. Teaching is allowing people confront the frustration of that and learning how to float with that or not, do you know what I mean? Which is that uh, those who seek to try and control the process or seek to kind of harness it, maybe maybe they can produce perfectly interesting work, I don't know, I haven't seen evidence of it. The, they limit those things. <clears throat> but for those who try to open themselves up to that kind of potentiality in the work, they run the risk of failure on multiple levels and it's quite a scary thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it's like because I know you've taught art as well, but the In architecture, there's all the mechanical stuff of trying to get the plan to work and all this Mm -hmm. other stuff and accommodate the brief and keep it warm and keep the Mm -hmm. rain out and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff, which is, I suppose, the base level of competence. Mm -hmm. And it's the gap between competence and the Mm -hmm. cultural value of the thing that Mm -hmm. might be architecture, right? And that gap, understanding the value of that gap, Mm -hmm. which is an internal thing Mm -hmm. and a risky thing, Mm -hmm. is an incredibly difficult thing to teach because in some senses it's a burden. It's certainly not an economically favourable ethic to adopt yes. um, is that similarly so I,
1: I would question that actually Well, yeah. I would because I think the economically most sustainable way of continuing practice is to keep it alive and um, if you're alive to these moments in your practice then y- your practice will last longer I think if you're not open to risk and you do not allow um, that element of questioning in, in in your practice or as a student or a practitioner um it becomes very brittle yeah and it becomes a cul-de-sac and then you become a mannerist of yourself and things fall away very fast so that i wouldn't think is a good economical it's not good for any business it's not good for anything to be truly sustainable creative and continuing i think you have to Allow those elements to play as well because mm. they kind of keep things buoyant. And I'm always fascinated with, in, in terms of my coming close in dialogue to architecture, I love the boundaries of where different materialities meet, mm. and those are the kind of territories you can really test those issues and how the energy of a, of a piece of timber and its um, material facade, in, in a way, mm. how it meets something else. Yeah. yeah. How those territories, which are very complex territories, how they're handled, you know? Yeah. So I think that that, for example, is critical, and that's fed by being very open to this, what we've been talking about. So I think it's actually, I think it's it's very important. And the other thing is I think it's very important because it allows... For, for art is certainly very important for me because I think if you're open to different things, you're vigilant. And I think we need to be very vigilant at the moment as we as we go forward. Things are shifting and changing very quickly. So we need to kind of have the signal of, of, um, um, of things and how they're changing. Mm-hmm. A lot is changing at the moment. so.
0: But that's interesting, this vigilance. I think that's a better... Yeah. Word than my previous one about trying to see it with some kind of newness or innocence or whatever oh, yeah. I think that you're right vigilance is the word it's a hard thing to do though isn't it there are times mm-hmm. one's demoralized or tired or whatever fed up in work mm-hmm. and being vigilant at those two at those moments for things which might be positive in the work mm-hmm. it's a very difficult thing to do in the same sense that when you're absolutely flying it and kind of yeah, in a yeah. buzz of adrenaline, being vigilant as to the the gaps that are emerging in it. I mean do you have a structure where you kind of formally sit down to crit the work yourself to kind of still it, even if you're frustrated with it, even if you're excited by it, or is it do you just always try and go with the flow of it?
1: Well I suppose first of all I could say that I was very lucky when I was very young I met a painter and he explained to me I had to study my energy and my creative energy. Which is very different to everybody else's. Not that I'm that unique. It's just that everybody has a their own sort of energy and how it flows and how it. So I think that helps me a lot because I I started doing that. I mean I met him when I was about 18, and 16 when I was kind of first year. I went into college when I was 17. Met him when I was 18, and he committed suicide the following year. Oh my god. Yeah, but anyway, <clears throat> the thing was that was. Absolutely enormous guiding principle for me. And um, the thing is, there are times when I have, I have that kind of very dynamic mind and I use it. But when I know my mind is like diligent and serving and and nuanced and subtle, I'll be doing detailing and I'll be mm. finishing and I'll be doing other aspects. And when I'm absolutely useless, <laughs> I'll sweep the floor. Actually, actually, I find that really good because my mind relaxes and then I kind of can think of things. The other thing is to, I do things like, um, if my mind is really overactive and I stop. I don't go and flog the thing to death. I stop before I get to a certain point so that it's really open. I know what I'm going to do next.
0: Yeah, but you stop. I stop. Yeah, no, that's true because then there's an urgency when you return. Exactly. No and then I kind
1: of get straight in again. Yeah. Like, I learned all these things. But, I mean, it doesn't mean to say, I'm, you know, because the trouble is, it doesn't matter. Because every time you do something, you're equally at risk. Starting again, you're as lost as you ever were.
0: True. But I do think that thing where you leave an open question in time when you're away from the desk or from away from the studio and your mm-hmm. place, or whatever. Stuff's working there. You mightn't know it. Yeah. And you return to it. I mean, it's a funny one where... Um, was an accident but you know at times when things weren't working for me in various yeah. situations I kind of did learn to always at the end find something that you would leave around you either on the desk or in a notebook and then you would look at it the next morning as a way of kind of just prompting a start without it being this kind of sifting Do you know the kind of the actual getting started yeah. part mm-hmm. is very hard I think it's and each day that's mm-hmm. a factor in each day's work the Throat clearing or something, mm. and this thing that you're describing, which is about going being able to listen to how your, I guess your head is, you know, at various mm-hmm. times. Time for sweeping the floor the time for making teas, the time for mm-hmm. going out for your friends with a beer. Mm-hmm. You know those sorts of things. Yeah, it's not talked about enough because mm-hmm. there's a kind of I, I feel a lot of um, sympathy for say, people in their early twenties mm-hmm. now because I think they're being expected to be. Yeah. productive on a level that I've oh, yeah. never seen before yeah I mean it's before. all these
1: corporate values are being dumped on us so we're supposed to be highly productive
0: which is an insane concept it's, is, uh,
1: it's abusive and horrible kind of uh,
0: but it's, what's, what's really horrible about it is it's to, to, to have this kind of constant level of productiveness if you know what I mean productivity without any peak or trough it's like this kind yeah, of yeah, which is an insane thing to think about is, because it's like just constantly running a marathon
1: yeah I mean, corporate values have have become really dominant language, and one has to sort of articulate things differently. And this, I think, it's, you know, what you, I kind of constantly ask myself: what's the what's what's the job of being an artist, and what what why is sculpture still necessary? And perhaps the language it carries, and the kind of spatiality, and the questions, maybe they 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 are important to rearticulate and to. It's very important for that gather of, of question, that type of question. For example, the agency of matter. You know, the fact that things are of themselves shifting and changing. You know, the other corporate view would have that we're in control and we're actually stamping out reality. Yeah. And everything's fine. Yeah. But actually it's not fine.
0: Yeah, not at all. Yeah,
1: so, you know. <laughs> Jane Bennett wrote this um, Vibrant Matter, it's called Vibrant Matter, the book, and that's very, very interesting. It's something that I think every artist since time began is completely aware of, this relationship between the material and that one actually has to work with material, that material uh, has an agency of its own. Yeah. And that you're engaged in a a way with it. And also spaces like that. Um, Um. for example, when I did my installation, Network of Relations, I had never actually made the piece until I got on site, I had to kind of let all the elements rest overnight together, uh, and it's psychological as well. But you know, they, they they sort of formed relationships. By the time I came in in the morning, it was nearly ready to be done. It wasn't a blank tableau, you know.
0: <laughs> I know what you mean. And there. like
1: there was one other instance which might explain this because it does sound a bit perhaps eccentric. I went to install. Uh, I was doing um, a two-day seminar in the the large space, the large gallery in the Crawford Art Gallery, and what I did was suspended these really fine translucent curtains Mm. and divided the space and it calmed the space I left it there for a week and it wasn't advertised as being anything but the, the space slowed down beautifully and they billowed with the kind of movement of the air and by the time I came in to make the other decisions, everything for me it was just you know it it, it induced another spatiality just by being there resting the space began to rest and move in a different way for me
0: do you ever have others make the work with you or for you it seems that your eye and your hand is incredibly important in these decisions
1: I do I like working with people like I made this piece Flesh which I had up in the Glendon Picks exhibition in, in the Irish Museum of Modern Art it was two thousand, and um, it was a big piece. I needed help, so I had people working with me. And basically, the thing was, all you had to do was throw plaster from a bucket, throw it at it, because the piece was an accretion of fallen elements of plaster. So you had
0: this team of people throwing plaster yeah. at this form for you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So they were walking around it, doing it. But then I was, I was looking at their movements, and so I'd move one person to another position, etc., etc. See the gestures. So story. the gesture, I was, I, I was telling them how, well, how to do the gesture, but sure, nobody would ever do the same gesture. Yeah. So then I had to assess all the different kinds of densities and gesture and kind of begin to move that around in the piece. Yeah. And that was lovely choreographically, like, you know, but and if I'm doing something, um, I'm very grateful and I love um, having people involved in my work. And I would very carefully choose the points of interaction. Uh, Because otherwise it becomes frustrating for them as well as for me. Anyway, a lot of my stuff is a bit neurotic. It's like endless parts, you know. (laughs) So sometimes I do need help. But once I have the concept in my mind and I know what I'm doing, then I would kind of have phases where a person would give me a hand and then I would have phases where I would go in and possess what's done and if you like, and sort of also be able to move forward, because it's like, I need to kind of psychologically possess everything before I can move it forward, you know? Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, but I, I love working with other people.
0: No, I, I only say it in that... Uh, yeah, I, suppose, I know. You know, the, the big thing, I suppose, in, 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 in architecture is that it's impossible almost to make decisions on site. It is. I mean, contractually, um, a job yeah. of any scale, we can't do the sorts of things that you do, which is, you know, in a sculptural sense, understanding that the adjustment of something by a tiny increment has a substantial impact on the actual thing itself, the feeling or the mm-hmm. relational uh, space that you're exploring. And I think that's also true of architecture. There's incredibly... Mm-hmm fine judgments in the last not even one percent point one point two percent about the meniscus of Mm. an architrave on a wall or Mm. uh, the precise calibration of a datum to an eye or all these sorts of things about how the body moves in a space which are not really possible you can get them broadly there with intolerances Mm. but the actual drilling into it to the point that you can really get it and this Mm. isn't a precious thing it's just basically about the Mm. tuning of something Um, in architecture they're becoming increasingly or they have pretty much disappeared as decisions that one can make on site so you have to Mm -hmm. constantly kind of produce ever more sophisticated simulacra of site Mm -hmm. I mean paradoxically now with all our digital technology architects are making much more physical models than at any point in history Mm. everything is maquettes, everything is like when you saw our studio upstairs, it is absolutely overflowing with models and that's not some kind of fetish, it's because I think we have to kind of supplant We have to kind of create the processes in the office for us to even get close to being able Mm. to have them realised on site. And i kind of am envious of the decisions that you can make. I mean, I remember a conversation that we had some time ago where you talked about the feeling of, say, a thread hanging and the decision that it might rest a little bit on the ground Mm -hmm. or might just stop short of the ground. Mm. And both those decisions, it's about a centimetre of thread we're talking Mm. about here, they transform the, the entire room, they transform the entire mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. And that's a metaphor for me this, about yeah. sometimes the decisions that we can't make in architecture. It's a slight frustration. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I could think that something that's perhaps some part of the job of sculpture. Yeah. I, you know, like I made one piece, one, um, which is called Litter Ben. No, it's called Measure. No, Measure. And when I, when I got it done, I was, I was building this kind of sense of a... They had a kind of a void in the sour heart of it, and it had a particular intensity and sensation, even though the piece is very finely drawn in space. And I wasn't happy with the intensity of the empty space. Mm. So I cut it all up and I made it again from scratch. But choreographically, I had it in my head, so I would chase down that intangibility. And intensify the intangibility as a task, but I think that's why I'm not a, an architect.
0: Yeah, I hear that. Yeah. Do you know,
1: I'm I'm I love architecture, but I'm not an architect.
0: No, because I kind of <clears throat> I felt a kind of momentary wave of kind of panic there when you said you just com- this is obviously a very complex piece. It didn't quite have it, so you completely destroyed it before you started to try to make the piece that would. I mean, what we would do, which sounds awful, I suppose, now that I think yeah. of it, is we'd keep the piece that almost had the thing that we wanted, yeah. and then we'd make a new piece, trying to look at the old piece, but trying to have those qualities in the new, do you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: but I would say to you, that's just, for me, that'd be disaster. Because
0: it's you're because becoming frozen. Because what would
1: happen is that actually, I'd get lost in a hall of mirrors,
0: No, I think you're right. Do you know, I would get
1: lost in a hall of mirrors because everything is so relative. Each imperfection kind of calculates, or it just kind of creates another reality. And then the thing is that if I don't completely start from nothing, nothing is repeatable. So it has to be a new piece informed um, by the old one. By the
0: memory of it, though.
1: By the memory of it, but coming into the intensity again, coming closer again. The thing is that... I have made quite a few pieces, like, what was the, uh, originally there were two of us, this is a piece, and again it's two long, long pieces, and oddly enough two very long, 2.5 metre long uh, woven structures that I made just before the Twin Towers went Mm. up, and I really felt that kind of attack in terms of almost a relationship of buildings, the duality somehow it somehow represented a, you know, the buildings were, I actually went to see them, the Twin Towers in 1974, do you believe? When I was a young artist, I got student of the year in second year in college and I went off and I was, I walked down towards them and I didn't think there were anything at all. I just thought, wow, wow. What's, but from the distance, they represented something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They always did. And that duality, but, the thing is there are inflections of difference because of the relationship is built on kind of an inflections of difference, but they could ne- you can never remake
0: Mm-mm.
1: because the, the, that nuance of relationship is unique yeah. and I think everything is unique. Mm-mm. Nothing is repeatable. That's so I've worked a few times on that idea of the impossibility of repeating.
0: No, but that's really interesting because, in that sense, it links to time, and I suppose yeah. the time of a human lifespan, the changes that happen within that lifespan, a piece of work happening at a particular time in one's life. I mean, they come with deadlines, don't they? Yeah. And 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 so therefore, it's a kind of a temporal thing too. You know, I think in architecture or in 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 in, in sculpture. I mean, in architecture, we try and pretend otherwise, but I think it's absolutely true that. You give mm-hmm. the same brief to an architect when she's thirty-five, and mm-hmm. you ask the same architect when she's seventy to mm-hmm. look at mm-hmm. the exact same brief. Of course, you're going to see completely different mm-hmm. pieces of work, um, and that's not because of a linear evolution. I think there's other things happening. Cultures change, changed, societies changed. There's something else. But it
1: immaterially, it's impossible. Even spatially. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing of digitally reproducing and the nausea of systemization and repetition. That's why it's such a cul-de-sac because it's actually contrary to reality. Yeah. And uh, so that's what I think about it. Because even I did a piece which was water jet cut, and it um, I did it because the, the edges are soft, so it looked like it was hand-sanded. hand, hand mm. Sanded. Mm. And the piece was called More Than Anything, and it was about the nature of excess. And it had an Eamesian kind of feel to it. I know the piece. The yeah. piece, yeah. And once I got over the fact that Eames, because uh, I had kind of designed this and then I discovered after I'd made it up in paper that Eames had done the card thing. But then I realized that was limited and I wanted a metaphor of infinity. So I felt that was sufficiently conceptually different for me to go ahead and make it. Mm. But anyway, I got like, I don't know, right, 10,000 pieces or something. I don't know how many pieces. I got loads done. Um, uh, perhaps not, maybe 5,000. Anyway, whatever. The thing is that each piece was different. Yeah. Each bloody piece was different, and it came back wet for starters. So I had uh-huh. with my my whole studio was like a like like um like you know leaves in a white path. I had to keep turning them to to <laughs> to kind of they would bend this way, bend that. <laughs> like, oh my god, look at this! Nothing. It, it, and but actually, were you
0: panicking or were you delighted about that? I
1: was I was freaked out because I thought. I had an idea of repetition in my head, and I realised, oh, there's no such thing as repetition. And interestingly, as things kind of resolved and I became involved in all the nuances and differences, I realised that that was what was going to make the piece work, the gentle undercurrent of difference throughout the entire repetitious piece. At any rate, the piece itself, it was the kind of piece where the idea sat apart from the actual piece.
0: I hear you, yeah.
1: Because the piece flat packed and the piece was only existent in relation to an environment. It changed every time. So, and that way I kind of um, destroyed the repetition by the fact that the system was a relational system and not just repetition. Yeah, yeah. Plus the fact that it was in- inherently sort of variant in itself. Mm-hmm. And I quite learned a lot from that piece. I'm kind of uh, totally bored with it now. But, um, and in a way, I'm sort of making something that's almost related to it at the moment, but I'm um, working it very differently.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting <coughs> because we were, we were talking about that piece. That, that is, I can see its lineage, but I, 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 I agree. It's a very different Yeah. Way. I mean, it was interesting. I mean, we really enjoyed that brief collaboration we had on that competition but it's an interesting one because it, it kind of it was funny because the process was too abstracted you know it was like that it needed to be something that we were actually prototyping and making you know yeah. And the tropes of a competition where it's all on the sheet and yeah. well, kind I mean, of nonsense really whereas what you t- did today where you took yeah. these prototypes of this piece you're working on
1: mm-hmm.
0: it just seemed like a, s- a far more fertile conversation you know yeah yeah and, and actually, interestingly, it had the quality, it was a sculptural piece, it had the quality of a drawing, it had the quality of a sketch, it had, the, it had lots of other qualities to it, yeah. drawing on it, but also it was a drawing itself in the I, room.
1: I never, you see the things with that, no, I've never drawn that potential piece, I have no idea what size it is. I don't want to know if I, if I this is the way I work myself, like if I knew exactly where I was going to be in the end, I might lose interest no i hear you i think so 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 the thing is i i'm, I'm actually finding out through through it what it is and that that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting point i think as well it's under emphasized the power of mind and matter in unison together how how those interact and that what different things you find mm. you find quite different things than if you just project the mind onto material from a distance.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, yeah.
1: So, um...
0: I think we've covered a lot of ground. I'm just wondering, we generally wrap up these interviews Mm. with if... And actually, maybe the whole interview has sort of been the answer to this question, perhaps. But we we generally asked if you had any advice to somebody studying the subject, be it sculpture or architecture or whatever, uh, what would Mm. it be?
1: Gosh. Um, well, I suppose... I would say to students of architecture not to underestimate the dialogues and discussions they have mm-hmm. and also to realise that within those kind of dynamisms and coherences and motivations that they find and that they, they find these points of, of excitement mm-hmm. or realisation and to know that those people could become very important people for them in the future yeah and that actually one of the most powerful and rewarding and sustaining things you can have are creative relationships as you expand that those those kind of synergies are critical Mm -hmm. like if you want to make that transition out that's a beautiful way of doing it and it's also um, to realize that you're you're building creative relationships the other thing I would say probably in that context is not to underestimate prompts, no matter how irregular they are or how strange or no matter what form they come in, things that you're you're attracted to or that you want to gather and keep for some unknown reason, because they're, they're all things that feed in and they're all gathering and acquire, they're all the ingredients of your language as it begins to form. It comes through maybe subconscious prompts to start with and maybe you need to just so not be open to those kind of prompts. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that think, would be, I no, mean...
0: I think that's really good advice. It's one of the things we're doing is actually in a year's time in, in Kingston, we're moving within the same building to a redesign space that's going to be organised precisely around this, about mm-hmm. the work of the school constantly being on display to the school and being more comfortable for people to spend more time in the school precisely to form these kind of... Well, they're friendships, really, aren't they? I mean, because... Yeah. I mean, frankly, one could be talking about, you know, football or music, but because you're in the studio, somehow you're, you're actually talking about architecture yeah. or whatever it is that one's doing in the studio, that they don't... These conversations that are significant, they don't ever feel significant when they're happening, obviously. Yeah. Which I think is a misconception on a student level. I mean, I certainly felt that. I felt that, you know... things were significant you would know it when they were happening but of course i didn't because they were significant because they were present in my life and of course anything that's present just feels like normalcy right you know just that's just what's happening right now so it all is completely banal
1: and i mean as we just we talked earlier about the importance of risk Yeah, i think risk is critically important because and vigilance because of the fact that things are changing so quickly we need to be incredibly responsive and also formation of um, an understanding how your own energy works and, and, and your own material culture, because it's through understanding that you'll be able to respond to these shifts and changes. But that um, I think that um, the thing is that those creative relationships are good ways of taking risk. Yeah. And I think risk is critical.
0: I think that's a good place to end. If that's okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. So, Maud Cotter, thank you so much for your time and your insights. It's been great to have
1: you. Okay, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. Our next episode will feature the architect Tom DuPierre and will come out in a couple of weeks' time. I hope you join us then. Many thanks.